0: Welcome to Enabled in Academia. My name is Linky Diedricks, your host, creator, and hopefully not the only listener of this podcast about how to survive and thrive in academia as a disabled, chronically ill, and or neurodiverse individual. Here with me today I have Miranda Melcher. Miranda is a teacher, researcher, and author. She's pursuing her PhD on post-conflict military reconstruction at King's College London's Defence Studies Department. She's been a teacher at the secondary and university level for nearly 10 years in the UK, US and France, with a particular teaching and research focus on students with learning differences. Just a quick note to our listeners that throughout this conversation, Miranda refers to learning differences and disabilities for brevity, with more detail and depth given on neurodiverse language and specifics in her writing, which you guys can access
1: in the description box.
0: Miranda, thank you so much for talking with me today.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit how you got involved with teaching and how this really led you down the road of yeah uh, you know, the current research and uh, work that you've been doing.
1: Sure. Um, so I absolutely love teaching. I have since I sort of accidentally stumbled onto it as a teenager. I don't quite know why, but something about the challenge of having to take a set piece of knowledge and explain it in a way that makes sense to a particular person and how that changes every time you explain it because everyone needs something different from you as a teacher, something about that challenge just never gets boring to me. And so I've kind of taken every chance I can get to be involved in teaching, um, which has often been perhaps through more unorthodox routes. as 18-year-olds are generally not sought after as official teachers, <laughs> And this sort of continued through my undergraduate, through my master's, through my PhD. And quite often what I found, particularly at the graduate level, was that the easiest way to get into teaching was through private tutoring. That was perhaps badly, that's a relatively unregulated (laughs) way of teaching. And it was something I could do in addition to my studies. So I started tutoring. And again, perhaps badly, most of the students that both need tutoring and who have parents who can afford it, tend to be students who probably want to do well, but for some reason, whatever's happening in the classroom at school isn't quite enough for them. And for relatively obvious reasons, that means that a lot of these students have some kind of learning disability a lot of the time. And so without really meaning to, I ended up with an entire roster of clients who mostly had learning disabilities. And I had come across them before, but never in this sort of intensive one-on-one environment where I was the one responsible for trying to make something work. And what I found is that it actually heightened this wonderful challenge that I love about teaching in actually a really, really fun way for me, because you couldn't kind of rest on this idea of, oh, I'm just going to replicate what they do in school. You had to be more creative. And that challenge is something that just absolutely fires me up. So I spent quite a few years doing this tutoring, um, And ended up sort of specializing in students with various learning disabilities and then took that into the more formal opportunities of teaching that I was able to do as I got further along in my graduate research.
0: Oh, that is just fantastic. And I know you have released the inclusive teaching primer at King's and I was hoping you could tell us a bit more about that, why it's important and how we can really make sure that everyone knows about it at King's.
1: Yeah, so I'm actually going to backtrack just a little bit, um, because I think it's important to understand the research side as well, uh, as in, in addition to the kind of practical aspect, which is that because I ended up with all this experience practically, teaching students with learning disabilities, I started doing actual research on it. It has nothing to do with my PhD research, but I still have all the skills, like how to look things up. And so quickly kind of joined up with some researchers in America, who we're doing research about um quite an understudied learning disability nonverbal learning disorder or developmental visual spatial disorder that nevertheless they could show affected 3 to 4% of the population globally which is quite significant and it quite commonly shows up as a maths issue but can also impact writing or socialization and so they wanted to create kind of a book about how to look at this from a clinical perspective from a therapeutic perspective But there really wasn't a lot of other researched books in this field. And so I was like, well, you really need something about education, because if most of these issues show up in an educational setting, it's not enough to just look at clinicians and therapists. We also need to be giving guidance for teachers because they're sort of on the front lines of this kind of thing. Um, And so they brought me into the book project as kind of the education person using a lot of this experience, but also research. That I developed through, for example, uh, being a fellow of the Higher Education Academy and things like that. So, lockdown actually worked in our favor. We managed to get the book published faster than we had planned. Um, So, it came out in November with Springer. And that's been an important basis as well of my own development of teaching practice, not just from anecdotal personal experience, but also joining the sort of wider research network and understanding of the more psychological and clinical aspects of learning disabilities.
0: Thank you for that background. I think that was
1: absolutely essential. So I took these two things together and came up with the Inclusive Teaching Primer. Now, we all know that we mostly moved to online teaching quite quickly in spring of 2020. Um, A lot of us had not had experience with this before. And quite rightly, a lot of the training offered to us by our various universities focused quite immediately on the technical side, right? If you're recording lectures for the first time, if you're doing a seminar on Zoom, like Technically, how do you do that? And I certainly signed up for all of those classes too. I had I had used Zoom before, but the specifics of all the different functionalities of a breakout room or Kaltura or Poll Everywhere, I mean, these were not things that were kind of daily use tools for me before the pandemic. So I signed up for all of these as well and you know took lots of notes and got very confused and shut down my computer (laughs) by accident a few times. But as I was going through all of these courses, I realized that they were all really technical. It was click on this, move this here. And none of them really addressed the sort of teaching behavior aspect. How do you include people online? And these were the sorts of things that I'd obviously already been thinking a lot about with my normal teaching. How do you include students who maybe don't fit the mainstream? But I sort of saw that this online teaching environment actually gave us a lot of opportunity because... Some of the things that are barriers to students with learning disabilities in face-to-face teaching kind of go away a little bit in the online environment. So a really important one to highlight is the sensory aspect. So there's a range of learning disabilities and physical disabilities that impact your sensory experience. So perhaps lights are brighter to you than they are to other people, or filtering out background noise is harder for you than for other people. And in a face-to-face learning environment, you're not in control of the physical space that you're in. And because of that, that physical space may not be actually a super helpful one to you. And maybe even if it is, the physical spaces you have to move through to get to that learning environment might have already sapped a lot of your energy that you then cannot use to learn once you're in class. In an online learning environment, a lot of those aspects are removed, right? You're sat at your own desk and you can set that up how you need to. You can deal with your own lighting and sound and all of these other aspects And in fact, things like sound can actually be improved because everyone has to speak one at a time because we don't have any way of figuring out whose turn it is to speak online. So there's a lot of ways in which I saw that the online learning environment actually might make things easier for students with disabilities or learning differences. Yet I didn't see any sort of training or information available that not only didn't talk about this, but also offered ways for teachers to expand their teaching practice and address the behavioral side of teaching beyond yeah. which buttons to click when.
0: That's really important. And that's fascinating. And how wonderful that you were able to see that gap and immediately respond to it. Miranda, like, can you tell me, like, you know, maybe give us some, I know you're, it's a wonderful primer. I can really recommend um, uh, everyone read it. Um, I have included the, the link to the primer um, in the description box. So please do go and have a look. But I was wondering if you could maybe chat through some of your case studies and examples that you have in your primer, particularly around language use and how that can be a more accessible and inclusive teaching environment.
1: Sure. So the primer, I I call it a primer because it really is specific and it really is practical. It's not an academic article. It's not meant to be. It is meant to be a, oh, I'm leading a seminar in 10 minutes. What are some top tips I can think about? And that's very much how it's structured. So there are three big principles that I firmly believe Uh, should be top of mind anytime you're dealing with students, full stop, especially because we don't always know what kinds of backgrounds or needs students have. And so these are just generally good practice. First of all, anything you communicate, be specific. If you think it's specific enough to most people who have learning differences, it probably isn't. So even simple things like today, we're all going to have a discussion. Okay, great. But what does that actually mean? Does that mean that everyone is expected to contribute one by one? Does that mean that there's going to be guiding questions as a facilitator that you're leading throughout? Or does it actually mean that you're going to have a big question, throw it open to the floor, and it's sort of students, it's up to them to figure out what to do. Those are all quite different learning experiences. And just simply saying we're going to have a discussion doesn't actually clarify which of those you're going to be doing. So any student who maybe is not super comfortable in a social environment or has difficulty thinking through their thoughts really quickly or sometimes articulating their thoughts out loud puts them at an immediate disadvantage just because they don't know what to prepare for. So the first principle is be specific. The second is be transparent. Academia, as we know, is a very strange system. Uh, We all come into it thinking maybe we know what we're doing, especially if we've chosen to pursue a graduate degree. But I certainly am not the only one, I hope who has come in being like this is how it works and then you increasingly find out oh there's all sorts of layers that you are not aware of and even quite simple things that uh, you know maybe at the undergraduate level they're not paying attention to like the politics of staff committees yeah. more power to them but things for example like what is a marking criteria all right maybe they should know that but have you ever actually read a marking criteria they're not clear
0: No, they're Um, useless.
1: They're (laughs) really, really confusing. Maybe it's (laughs) my particular department at King's that is maybe especially vague, but generally they'll say things like good depth of knowledge. What does that mean? By the time you get to a point where you're marking, you actually probably do know what that means. Maybe you've sat through training, maybe you just know it through experience, but we often forget that our students don't know what these things mean. And so a key principle of teaching is just being transparent. It's not about telling them the answers. It's about explaining these sort of academic rules that aren't actually written down anywhere.
0: That's so true. You know, Miranda, I'm just thinking of my own PhD. Um, I read this book called The Unwritten Rules of the PhD. And they talk about the upgrade there, which we all have to do in the UK. When it was spoken from a sort of more like almost like the real politic of academia and this academic explaining it, it made a lot more sense to me. I was like, oh, that's what they want to see. They want to be able to see, you know, for instance, that you're part of the academic club. You know, you have you've cited all the people within the first however many pages. And that gives you a really concrete idea about what to do. And it, t- it takes a lot of the sting out. And I mean, if that can happen in a PhD, how much more so is that important for undergraduate students and taught students?
1: Exactly. And it's very much something that I think those of us who teach. You know, it's quite, it's quite common to talk about, oh, the rise of anxious students and so many more students are anxious now. And especially from the older professors who maybe their university experience was quite different from those of us who went through not that long ago. And I think there's often a misunderstanding that kind of this anxiety is, oh, it's the 21st century. Oh, it's Gen Z. Oh, it's social media. And sure, those are probably included. But I think a lot of it is also students feel more able to vocalize their confusion coming into this like suddenly very strange world. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, I think we should kind of be using that expressed anxiety to examine what we're not being transparent about. And I think that that's something really important for the academy in general to have a think about. Because fine, barriers to entry to a particular profession, I'm not saying get rid of it, but let's be choiceful about the things that we're using as barriers to entry, rather than just kind of oh, we never actually thought about the fact that marking criteria makes no sense.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And and everyone is just blundering along with it, right? So we all go to the training, we're all sitting there secretly as tutors wondering, how are we going to make sense of this? And no one really, you know, speaks up and, and, and really works through it, you know, and I think that's a pedagogical imperative. Absolutely. And it links nicely to what you were saying about research. We as how can I say university tutors or research um, uh, um, teaching assistants, and and also our professors and lecturers? You know, we don't really have formal pedagogical training or research background, and yet you would not let your young child or teenager sit in front of someone who hasn't got the requisite training. Um, and it's uh, interesting for us that we seem to think that's not necessary, and then we wonder, like you say, about uh, student anxieties and student dissatisfaction. You know, perhaps right. we should really and look more critically and well, actually intellectually and research our practice better.
1: Yeah, well, and I'm not saying that, you know, we all have different research interests. So I'm not saying that we all need to go become education specialists. Um, oh, but I do it. think that there are some basic good practices that would just help. So the first one is be specific. The second is be transparent. And the third is be mindful. And this is following quite a strong tradition at this point that is battling against this idea of the assumed student. So anyone who's familiar with gender studies, disability studies, you'll be quite familiar with this concept, which is that the university is still in a lot of ways designed for a white man with no caring responsibilities to succeed in. And that has traditionally been the case, but is obviously in today's world not at all what most of our students are. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so simply the principle is be mindful, right? is you may not know what your students are coming into the room with. In fact, that's perhaps one of the disadvantages of online learning, is that it might make it even harder for you to know what sorts of backgrounds or disadvantages your students are coming in with. On the other hand, you shouldn't have to know every detail about their background to teach to a broad audience. So the third principle is simply just to be mindful. And that's one of the things that this primer is hoping to do, is, um, as I'll talk about in a minute, going through specific examples, good practice, but also explaining why it makes a difference. I'm hoping to contribute to this idea of being mindful just by raising a bit of awareness about what different things different students might be going through that maybe you as a teacher haven't encountered before. Fair enough. You're not expected to be omniscient, but this primer is meant to sort of help you and provide you with some tools to actually enact this principle of being mindful in a practical way to benefit your teaching.
0: Miranda, could you talk us through one of these specific examples? I know you give various examples in the primer.
1: Sure. So one of them that's I'll just kind of choose at random, but this is a particular one that um, is, feels important to me. Uh, so I've got a bunch of teaching tips. They're sorted into where you might encounter them. So general ones, ones that will come up more in synchronous teaching, one that will come up more in asynchronous teaching, etc. So And they're all structured in the same way. I give a recommendation about what I want you to do. A baseline example of how this can look, how what this could look like, for example, what might you actually say? An aspirational example, so maybe an even better thing that you could say. And the short paragraph underneath that just explains why this makes a difference to what kind of students. So let me take you through one of those now. So this is one of my general recommendations, which is that I would suggest that you, if you're going to mention it discuss the move to online teaching and learning in a balanced manner without assuming that it's a uniformly negative experience. So what could this look like? It is probably going to be at the beginning of a synchronous session, so maybe it's a Zoom call seminar, and you're sort of welcoming students into the room, and you might say something like, I know moving to everything being online is an unexpected adjustment for many of us, but I'm sure we'll make it work. That would be sort of a baseline, inclusive, method of acknowledging that there are challenges, but keeping it not uniformly negative. An aspirational example, so maybe an even better version of that, would be something like, I know moving to everything being online is an unexpected adjustment for many of us, but I think it has some positive aspects too for accessibility and inclusion. I'm sure we'll make this work for everyone. So that's a little bit more because you're acknowledging both sides explicitly. Now, why does this matter? This kind of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. Moving to online teaching happened very, very quickly and with not a lot of planning for the vast majority of us. That inevitably has negative consequences for mental health, for stress, for sleep, for planning, for preparation, as with anything unexpected. However, as I mentioned at the beginning, for students with disabilities or learning differences, Online learning actually can give them many more opportunities to engage and participate than they had previously. And so by you as the teacher, and therefore kind of the powerful person in the room, if you make a comment, even if it feels to you like an offhand comment at the beginning of a kind of greeting everyone session, if you make a comment that implies that you assume that everyone has a negative experience with online learning, that can feel to these students for whom it's actually beneficial, that you're sort of, you don't want to hear the positive sides, that, you're at, that your perception is that online learning is bad and therefore that maybe this isn't going to be a type of session that takes advantage of the extra opportunities that online learning affords. And so whether or not that's actually your intent, in fact, I would guess that for many people, that's not their intent. The phrasing of this language, the fact that only one side of the experience is acknowledged can feel to students who are at the other end of the power dynamic and who are often disadvantaged anyway in learning environments, feel less able from the outset to participate and speak up, which is, of course, not what any of us wants for students in terms of engagement. So a really, really simple change in your language just for example diluting the negativity or mentioning the positives as well as the negatives really simple changes in your language can nevertheless have a really important signaling effect
0: absolutely and it just can, could mean the difference the small difference can make a major difference in that student's ability to feel comfortable in the class and also engage with the content eventually
1: exactly um, and that's the whole principle of this teaching primer which is i focus on low effort high impact changes. So none of the things I'm recommending require you to go write a research paper or read a new book or take a whole new bit of technical training. This is all about how small tweaks in your language and communication can actually have a really big impact on a key portion of students.
0: And Miranda, how is this um, being implemented at King's? Um, I know staff could... um download the primer um are there any uh, will you be holding any more workshops in the, in the in 2021 where they can find out more about it and see how they can get involved
1: yeah so the primer is available is somewhat in fits and pieces at the minute throughout kings but we're working on getting it established on a bunch of different web pages within the university we did have a workshop in december 2020 that actually was really well attended um, and people found really useful and there are already plans to hold another workshop in January 2021 and potentially in future. And then additionally, this I presented this to JISC, the education charity, in November and hopefully should have sort of a blog post written about that coming out in the next month or two as well to reach beyond the King's community.
0: Yeah, fantastic, because I think that's so important. Um, So uh, I'll definitely be uh, sharing this um, with with all our listeners. And please do tweet back at us and let us know if this is helpful. Um, Engage in discussion and do let us know at your institution whether you have something similar so we could um, link up and join forces. Miranda, and I think this is absolutely timely because, you know, obviously we've seen now lately that COVID isn't about to just disappear. And so it, it really, it cannot come at a better time to help us adjust to new ways of working and new ways of learning.
1: Well, and the important thing as well is that a lot of these recommendations are not specific to online learning. So I'm sort of hoping to take advantage of this disruption and everyone having to rethink their teaching, but ideally to create habits and teaching practices that can then transition back into face-to-face teaching as well.
0: Absolutely. And so you really have sustainable change, small effort, like you said, for a big outcome across a range of teaching environments. That's really fantastic. That's the goal. (laughs) Miranda, well, thank you so much for being with us here today. And um, also just to all our listeners, Miranda has submitted her PhD. So a big congrats to you. And um, yeah, and all the best for the future and everything that lies beyond the PhD.
1: Thank you. I have no idea what that is yet, um, but I'm hoping it will be fun. And I really am quite uh, hoping to continue in this area with inclusive teaching. So please, if people have their own ideas or things that do or do not work or things you want to add or whatever you've come across in your own experience, please do reach out to me. Uh, I would really love to continue the conversation. Please do like, well, guys, share, there and you have it. please this get in contact with Miranda. She's following up this
0: person who's at doing really work. work, and we're if very you happy have any to have had her here on in an today. any questions or impressions, please tweet at us or send me an email at enabledinacademia at gmail The music for this podcast, "A Room for Two, is composed by Dan Leibovitz and is available on the YouTube Audio Music Library. As always, access isn't optional for us to be enabled in academia. Yep, I'm making that a thing.